to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most important artist in modern music history. I'm Matt Bell, your host. Do us a favor and like, comment, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Share this with a friend or 20. Then go back and listen to the other 60 episodes. I promise there are some amazing artists there. There are names... There are stars, and then there are legends. Daryl Anger is a legend. He has been a trailblazer in the string world his entire career. Right now, we're listening to Night in Tunisia by the Turtle Island String Quartet, of which Daryl is a founding member. We'll be listening to a lot of music in the next hour or so, but trust me when I say we could have gone much, much longer and still left out a lot of important stuff. Do yourself a favor grab a pencil and start writing down the names of the songs, albums, groups, and artists you hear about here and start diving down the rabbit hole of amazing music that will surely follow. This episode is an absolute history of progressive string playing and we really only scratched the surface. So here's episode 61, Daryl Anger, Rockstar Violinist. Well, so I was watching some uh, some of those old Turtle Island videos this morning. I'd forgotten like how freaking groovy you guys were. <laughs> well, we you know for that time we we were grooving pretty pretty hard. You know, with Mark Summer, the cellist in there. You know that guy. You know, one of those people that sort of waves their hands over the instrument and groove flies out. It's it's kind of amazing. You know. Yeah, that was that was crazy. So that was your second project, then, right? You'd been with the uh, with the quintet before that. Yeah, David Grisman Quintet, and then uh, we had a kind of an interim project of, of the Montreux Band, which was uh, kind of a Wyndham Hill project, and we actually played all over the world with that group, played jazz festivals and everything else, and that was kind of interesting because it was sort of semi-acoustic, semi-electric. Um, so that was that was the time that I really you know went into. I had a little refrigerator-sized you know rig. Uh, of course, that was the days when you could just you know you'd pull up at the airport in your van and load all your your refrigerators out on the sidewalk, and the road manager just hand the skycap a hundred dollar bill and say, "Can you deal with these, please?" <laughs> Yeah, those uh, I remember those days. It was it was crazy. We'd roll in into the airport with with thirty or forty rolling racks of stuff, and your equipment managers just got a checklist. And yeah, just happens, you know. It's <laughs> oh yes, those were the days. Well, yeah, I'm happy not to have be carrying around that much stuff. Anyway. <laughs> that, yeah, on one hand, we've had to figure out how to do 
with with less, right? Yeah, yeah, and we can do more with less, really. I mean, yeah. Now you got a little, you know, little piece of it. Okay, everything's attached still. Yeah, I haven't gone totally wireless yet, but I expect to. But something the size of a metronome can you know, pretty much give you everything you want now. Yeah, it's crazy. So what was the uh, what was the driving force behind the uh, the the quintet? I guess if that was the the first major project that you were working on, what was uh, what what helped you guys decide that we're going to go from what strings what everybody knows strings do to something completely different? Yeah, I you know it's funny. It, it just seemed like a very natural progression for us. You know, it, you know we had all these bluegrass instruments, and the whole idea of the bluegrass band sound was uh, such a powerful thing but it was so tied with like sort of a cultural association and so you know it's a really you know like these certain licks that you played and a certain sound still is you know um one of the few genres left that really ties itself to a sound you know that, uh, you know a way you know even to the, the melodies that get played um but we just thought, well, we're, you know, everybody kind of grew up on the Beatles and, you know, this whole idea of, like, everything is grist for our musical mill. And, and David had written a whole collection of new material anyway. Um, and we liked jazz. We kind of wanted to learn to play jazz. And everybody was kind of in the same spot, you know. David and I both read music a little bit and we knew a little bit about theory. And... Uh, Everybody else, you know, but we everything was by ear, you know, but we were able to kind of, you know, teach ourselves, you know, we just sit with a piece of music that, you know, either David's original stuff or, you know, we did Chikoria material and, and uh, even some bebop just to figure out, well, how do you do this on string instruments? And, you know, the great thing about that combination of instruments is just very strong. Um, people had been playing, you know, other kinds of music on, in string bands for just pretty much the whole history of string bands. You just didn't hear it because a lot of it, you know, didn't get recorded. Uh, but people were playing social music, you know, with just all string bands for, for many years. We just kind of kicked it up into the next level. And, of course, there were people on the West, the East Coast, people in New York City were doing the same thing. Um, their, you know, approach, people like Andy Statman and Tony Trishka, Matt Glazer and, and um, you know, all those guys, um, they were doing that stuff. It was just more like, more like living in New York City, you know, it's just like this crazy quilt. You walk, you know, one doorway is blasting out, you know, um, salsa music, the next doorway is blasting out jazz. Um, and that was their approach, but we had all this stuff that we kind of, Digest, you know, we were trying to digest it before we, you know, remade it, you know, and that, in the form of original music, and that, that I think that's what kind of made it happen for us, you know, David's originals and everybody else started writing too. So you guys had grown up together, or did you meet uh, maybe as teenagers? Or well, I was a big fan of David uh, for many, for years. Uh, I liked that group, Olden and the Way. Um, and uh, David had been playing with, he had a, he made a record with Clarence White and Richard Green and Peter Rowan called Mule Skinner, which was actually some of that stuff was electrified because Clarence was playing, you know, electric guitar by then. Some of it was acoustic. It was all mixed and that was exciting to hear that. Um, 
I had not met David by that. I was just a fan who was playing music. Uh, had my own crazy little bands out in Santa Cruz, California, on the beach there. Good beach town, good college town. You know, a place to just, you know, you could live cheaply at, the, at that point and, and just play music. Uh, lots of bars. And uh, so when I finally was able to meet Dave, I, you know, yeah, it was like Old in the Way played at the Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium. I had just played there the last week, opening up for Doc Watson, so I knew the guys that were doing the door, so I just kind of insinuated myself in. And I wanted to meet David and Vassar Clements. Um, mm. And I think both of those guys were so charmed that somebody would come in not wanting to meet Jerry Garcia. <laughs> that, uh, you know, they, they kind of, David remembered me, you know, and uh, that was cool. So we kind of stuck, struck up an acquaintance, and then David had this band called the Great American Music Band, which was the precursor of, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, DGQ. And I was a big fan of Richard Green. And Richard Green was the first electric violinist that I'd heard. You know, I know Jerry Goodman was doing stuff with the flock at that point, but Richard was who got me excited. He was playing with C-Train, uh, playing electric, playing Orange Blossom Special, and doing all this crazy stuff. Great bluesy, you know, just maniacal. He was not afraid to do the crazy stuff on, on uh, violin. So... That's the guy that really inspired me to start playing fiddle. Okay. Yeah. So you you started in school, or did you just start kind of on your own? Oh, yeah. Well, I was in high school, and I was playing classical violin, and I, I tried electric guitar. Uh, I was into Eric Clapton and all that stuff. And um, when I saw Richard, I, you know, I hadn't put violin and electric music together yet. Um, and then Richard... Kind of, oh, you can do, you know, all right, well, I'm a lot better on violin than I am on guitar. And, you know, there's 200 guys ahead of me just in my high school alone on electric guitar. So if I, you know, transfer all these licks I've been learning on guitar over to violin, I'll have a niche. I'll be the only guy in my school <laughs> that's doing that. So, yeah, I got into electric early. I got one of those D'Armon, uh, what do people call it, the monkey on a stick. Um, okay, and uh, kind of stuck it on the violin, and you know, got a lot of feedback and just you know, noise out of it, and that was fun. And discovered the Barkus Berry instruments later on, and uh, you know, just uh, and the, you know, bluegrass happened, and and one nice thing was that you could rehearse a band in in the house, you know, with right. acoustic music. Whereas you were stuck in the garage, you know, with electric, uh, with the egg cartons on the walls, you know. <laughs> uh, you probably remember that, too. You're old enough to remember. Yeah, the, uh, the neighbors are usually not a big fan of that. Yeah, they, you know, the egg cartons didn't really do the job you wanted them to. And, you know, that, <laughs> they looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl's been talking about the David Grisman Quintet. Here's a bit of their performance on Austin City Limits in 1980. 
So had you been going to bluegrass festivals and stuff at that at that I point? I started doing that. Yeah, um, that's that was kind of my you know. So I I kind of drifted out of the electric stuff, even though I I you know sit in with bands and in my you know town hometown and stuff. I'd plug in and do all that stuff, but uh, really you know, it seemed like. Um, the acoustic was was where the um, for me you know I was making money doing acoustic music and you could do all that sound I mean with electric with, you know with violin I mean you're set up if you get you know you can do all the sounds right Matt I mean yeah like it, I mean that's just you know you just made for that kind of stuff it's amazing you can get all that stuff without having to uh, you know, well, digital delay is a little harder, <laughs> but you can do that too, you know, all right, yeah. Right, you know, so right. Yeah. you can play around with that stuff, which we did, you know, with David Grisman. That was, uh, you know, I, I was using a lot of kind of electric-y kind of sounds anyway, you know, just because that's what I loved, you know, I love that electric guitar. That's where you were finding the real, you know, the, 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 the stuff, you know, the new stuff, you know, was the, the guitar players uh, for me. So that's who I was listening to mostly. Yeah, yeah me too. I grew up in Detroit. So it oh, was, God, uh, and this yeah. was all pre, pre-social media and pre-internet. Yeah. So you just hear what you heard on the radio. Yeah, that was who was doing it. Yeah. Oh, man. So who do you like? I mean, who do you like on guitar? I mean, I'm I'm like a Steve Vai uh, kind yeah. of guy, Steve Vai and Satriani and yeah. and, uh, and and all those guys. All those you know, guys of course, Detroit. So there's Ted Nugent and all those cats up there. But the I grew, I was an '80s kid, so uh -huh. Eddie Van Halen and, and this stuff yeah. was all over the radio. See, that's the amazing. You know, that thing when things really exploded and started flowering, and you get this incredible virtuosos, and you know, that was stuff. You know, I was kind of back. I'm old. I, I'm kind of back with Clapton and and. Uh, you know, Jimmy Page and those guys, who were doing some pretty amazing stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Greg Allman, you know, on the slide and stuff. Of course, yeah, I mean, being able to do slide, you know, you can do that. <laughs> you can always, you can do all that kind of stuff on, on any violin, but it's really fun on electric. Well, the cool thing is that you'll hear, like, these new sounds that these guitar players are coming up with, and you're playing in an acoustic band, and you're like, well, I, I like that sound, so how do I make my acoustic violin make that sound? Yeah. It's just a process of, of experimentation. Yeah, and you can. You know, that's what's so great. You know, you actually can do that on the violin. That's an amazing, amazing thing. So, yeah, even though I wound up buying a lot of foot boxes, snot boxes, you know, I, wound, I was always going back to, well, I could kind of do this, you know, on the, on the acoustic. Yeah, so the, then uh, the thought process behind writing all this music and getting out and touring maybe sort of tell the story of, of how your career sort of took off. Yeah, well, you know, um, going out of, of David's band after about almost 10 years uh, of being on the road doing that, um, I was really ready to start, you know, I had a lot of my own music and I was playing a lot with Mike Marshall um, and we had a whole huge bunch of stuff that we were doing together and uh and we were like we were plugging in even though they were acoustic instruments we were still plugging in a lot um just and david didn't like that he wanted it all to be microphones you know 
And so we were kind of champing at the bit to get out and do our thing. And, and so we did that, and we that led to this, this Montreux group, um, which was uh, Barbara Higby. And she had a, you know, she had one of the first DX7s, you know, and we did mm. piano and all that stuff. And then uh, for a while we had Todd Phillips, and then we got Michael Manry. I know that's a familiar name to you, you know, because you know the, one of the most amazing fretless bass players ever. Um, Absolutely. And you know, still innovating, uh, incredible uh, guy. You know, he's really, uh, you know, he studied with Jaco Pastorius and um, mm -hmm. just went on from there. You know, worked with Michael Hedges, and that that really, you know, kind of developed that whole, you know, pounding on the thing. So that was great, you know, we had, it was semi-acoustic because Michael was playing totally electric and we were all plugged in and, and we just wanted a big sound and we were competing on these big stages, you know, with other, you know, jazz and fusion groups and all this stuff. Um, I don't think, did we ever play a bluegrass festival? I don't think so. <laughs> but we were, yeah, we were kind of all over the place. We were in Europe and doing all this stuff. That was really fun. And... Uh, there, you know, just, it was an interesting, we were all in our late 20s and there were all kinds of, you know, personal issues, you know, which uh, led to the band not really lasting more than about four years. Here's the band Montreux that he just talked about. This tune is called Just Walking.
And, uh, you know, I was already kind of working on this thing with, with this fellow David, Balakrishnan, um, which was, you know, basically developing the idea of a string quartet that could do kind of basically the same thing as the David Grisman band. You know, we just played contemporary music, you know, um, music, you know, in a convincing way. You know, you didn't need a rhythm section if you could do... you could do that have somebody to do that and maybe have two people doing interlocking grooves you still have room for a soloist and a bass player and uh, meeting Mark Summer who was really capable of just doing all that uh, bass and drums on the cello um, it just oh man we can do this we can do all you know these jazz and fusion covers we can do our original stuff we've got plenty of original stuff too and that just took off. It was just the time, you know, because we were, you know, the Kronos Quartet was hitting really big at that point, and they were doing amazing stuff, but it was still very weird classical musicians reaching out to the rest of the world, you know, interpreting this stuff as, you know, stylistically classical violins. And we said, well, there's room for people to do this, you know, for real, like, improvising solos and you know grooving like crazy you know we're just like you know like a twin poles of a totally new uh chamber music you know string quartet movement and that was an amazing time yeah and uh we yeah we took that we took that group all over the world too that was it was amazing and uh, we just loved it you know it's uh um, you know, we had some personal changes. Tracy Silverman, who I'm sure you're very, mm -hmm. you know, Tracy's just an amazing genius. And he had already had his grunge band in, in Minneapolis at that, you know, when we hired him, he was already doing like some pretty intense, you know, very, you know, amazing electric music. He was one of those guys that, you know, debuted with the Chicago Symphony at 13 years old and, you know, did all this and went to Juilliard and... He just didn't care, you know, he just didn't care about that stuff. He just wanted to play music. And, uh, you know, I still am in touch with Tracy a lot because uh, he taught me so much about, every, you know, violent playing and making music. Because I was kind of self-taught, you know, after a certain point on violin. I just kind of tried to, you know, just figured it out um, with the help of watching, you know, other people who could play and listening. But uh, Tracy kind of... Uh, also, I watched him. I watched him very close because I was standing next to him, and that right. really was a beautiful thing, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, so that had its had its life, you know. It went. Um, it was another ten years of my life into Turtle Island, and then I kind of just went into my personal, you know, projects. I was. I want to circle back to Turtle Island. The, yeah. the number of cats who have that sort of um i guess conservatory level skill set for the technique 
who can also groove, who can also improvise. Like that's a that's a very small number of people. Man, when, and when back in those about, days was even smaller. When you talk about viola, <laughs> that is a small number of people, you know. And we had a, kind of an exploding violist problem for a while uh, with that <laughs> that group. But we wound up with uh, Danny Seidenberg. Uh, after a while, and uh, well, the first violist we had was a violinist. It was Irene Caesar, who also, you know, familiar name to a lot of folks. She's mm-hmm. amazing, incredible violinist, super creative. She's got her own string quartet now called the Real Vocal Quartet. But uh, yeah, you know, people like and actually, because we were doing pretty complicated charts and you know, reading a lot, you know, um, very highly arranged heads, you know, and then blowing in the middle and there might be some you know arranged accompaniment you know if, if you get one person that's like playing you know and then somebody might play you know right so trying to make sure that um you know just because most people you can only really play two notes at a time with this right. stuff, you know, if you want a four-note chord, you better have it kind of arranged, you know. So there was all these different levels of, you know, arrangement and uh, and improvising going on. So that was, um, you know, yeah, we needed people that could actually read, you know, really play, you know, read and play and groove, like you said, you know, exactly what you said, you know, that was a it was a tall order and a very narrow. Um, uh, band of, of uh, people, you know. And of course, that's widening out so much now. You got, man, there's just so many great, you know, Gabe Terraziano comes to mind because uh, I, Gabe just uh, emailed me. He's got a new record coming out. That guy in New York, great, great player. But, you know, Alex Hargreaves, Jeremy mm-hmm. Kittle, these these folks are just, you know, they're, they're just all over the place now. Incredible, you know, fantastic players. And I, I just you know, feel really lucky to you know have them pass through my life you know a lot for many, for years now. Um, it's uh, it's just so exciting to be in the middle of this. Well, then you add in on top of all that skill set the ability to entertain, <laughs> because this isn't this isn't just a we're going to sit here and stare at our music stands kind of thing. You guys aren't even sitting besides the cello player. Oh right, yeah. You know that was interesting. You know because I'd been playing in these other bands for so long, you know, I just felt like, wow, man, do I want to look like a paraplegic or feel like one? You know, I, I want to stand, I want to dance, you know, I want to move around. And so that was, that was really cool. And of course, you know, with people like Mike Block now, he, he designed that cello strap. Now the cello player can right. do that too. And that, in those days, you know, uh, we just would put uh, Mark up on a, on a riser, you know, so like a drum riser. You know, right. Mark on because he was playing drums anyway. Yeah. This is the Turtle Island String Quartet with Seven Steps to Heaven by Miles Davis. This is from a live performance in 1996. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, you know, there's a tune called Dexteriors that I wrote that was, was really, it was, I was trying to do the James Brown kind of, you know, sort of jazz fusion R&B kind of a lot of rhythm, a lot of chopping, you know, just really showcase the whole, you know, all the stuff that we could do with rhythm. And that, that, that was kind of the, I would love to, um, you know, hear that, you know, we've, I think we've got a couple of, there's some live versions of that out on YouTube and stuff. And then, and we've got, you know, there's, I think the original recording's pretty good too. So that would be a thing, you know, and I definitely just, uh, yeah, what, uh, is this thing in tune? Yeah, okay. Yeah, um. You know, that kind of business, um, you know, with, with like other interlocking parts, you know, everybody, at some point everybody was chopping, but you know, that kind of thing where, you know, people, you know, Everything is going at once, but everybody's got their little space, you know, whether whether just contributing to the group. And that's a that's a beautiful thing. Uh, yeah, there's even besides the chopping, there's some stromboing and stuff in there too. Oh yeah, yeah. I love that. You know, Tra that was Tracy's idea. You know, oh, well, it's just like, yeah, I hadn't realized it. You know, I mean that that was the principle from the very beginning, right? Um, you know, this whole business of like, well, you know. You don't go right. You go right, and that's exactly what's going on. Right, you're not going right. Right. You no, know, you can't do it that way. You can't groove like that. So Tracy really codified that in a beautiful way, and I'm I'm loving that. Uh, you know, he's getting some mileage out of that, and uh, really, you know, yeah, helping people figure out well what is. How do you groove on this thing? This is Dexteriors, written by Daryl Anger and performed by the Turtle Island String Quartet. Thank you. 
what was the uh, what was sort of the process for? Were you guys pretty early in the whole chopping thing as far as strings, or were there some other folks doing that? Well, the first guy that I ever heard chop was Richard Green in nineteen seventy with C Train. He was doing it. He invented it. He started that. You know, he he figured out how to do that with Bill Monroe of all people back in '65. Back in '64. But he, you know, he and I learned. You know, that was a totally exciting. And it was like I can't. This is the most amazing stuff I've ever heard. You know, got and I took a lesson from Richard early on. I, I you know, when I met da David, got me in touch with uh, with Richard. And I went down and. Hung out with Richard, and, and he graciously um, <laughs> taught me how to chop. You know, I, I think I was like patient number one. You know, if Richard was n zero, patient zero, because he invented it, um, then I was patient number one. You know, so that uh, so I've been using that forever, and in um, you know just have thought about it a lot and, and worked it. You know, for and. It's really interesting to see how people learn it. You know, I I, I remember an amazing year at the, the Mark O'Connor Fiddle Camp, having Billy Contreras, Casey Dreesen, uh, Andy Reiner, and uh, oh man, I think Michael. Oh man, uh, Michael Cleveland, all in the same class, the Chop Holy class, Gerald's Chop Shop. <laughs> And that's, oh my goodness, that's that like the was, Hall of Fame of players uh, like, right there. Yeah, I, Tyler Andall too. You know, all those guys. And I'm going like, okay, guys, you know, you got to tilt the bow the other way and then go up and you get a sound on going down and you get a sound on going up. So it's not just like chunk. The chunking has been around forever, right? Right. But you get twice the sound for the same amount of work. And I'm always into that. You know, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Economy, right? If you get, you know, you get a sound coming off the string, and you get a sound going on the string, and that's and that's what you, you know, that's your basic, that's the substrate. That's where everything comes out of this, just the old up and down or down and up. You know, now I've started teaching it from a string, so you start. At a rest position on the string, okay. And you, this is the first sound you get. It's coming off, and that, this is the difficult one. I think this is the one that flummoxes people the most is trying to get the upstroke. You know, yeah. Because then people, I just can't get the upstroke. You know, well, you got to leave the bow on the string. So if you start with the bow on the string, then you're more liable to, you know, kind of get get it. You know. And that's, that's really, you know, it's kind of like, it reminds me of the people that are starting to teach, um, you know, beginning violin with all the fingers down. And they start with this, they, you actually do a scale starting with the fourth finger. Oh, descending. You start with all fingers down. And that um, apparently is uh, kind of catching on. Uh, it's kind yeah. of an exciting development. I wish I'd started like that too. Cause my, yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's it's... The opposite of what you would think, but it it makes sense when you when you say it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of cool. You know, you just get you, you know it just sets your left hand up for success right away. Right. You know, you never have to go. Oh my God! 
<laughs> well, because otherwise, Suzuki, what do you like? Book two or three before they even mess with a pinky at oh, all? And then everybody wonders why their pinky's weak. There you go. You know, I mean, one of the many reasons. And yeah, so that's that's been really interesting. You know, so that's I kind of got the idea from that. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I can start with the hard part. And then once they get that, you know, it's very easy to do that, you know. If you, <laughs> so yeah, what what goes up must come down. It's a yeah, according to Newton. That's right. <laughs> and so now you can't hardly flip on a uh, a violin video without seeing somebody chopping. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, it's like Ebola or something. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be making. Pandemic jokes anymore. I, I won't yes, actually. Well, I think maybe we're almost done with this one. I hope so. And God, it's yeah, it's been such an interesting, you know, the last thirty years of being a professional musician, watching like you know opportunities to make money as a musician just keep getting eliminated, one by one. Ding, ding, ding. And uh, yeah, not to you know, I'm not gonna complain anymore, but um, I'm complaining right now. <laughs> Well, this last year took pretty much the rest of them. Yeah, you know, we've that, been watching the, all the income now. opportunities come down, and then twenty twenty is like, yeah, remember the few you had left? Those are gone now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of amazing, and you know, teaching at Berkeley, you know, uh, for ten years, um, just you know, seeing the you know, like the amount of money folks were paying to you know to um, you know just learn about music, be around other musicians. Um, I'm going like, wow, you know, it's it's like, how are you ever going to make any of this money back? You know, it's it's kind of like the, the the cooking schools, right? You know, the culinary, right. are, you know, where people pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars to, you know, so they can go chop carrots in a basement for some, you know, crazy, you know, uh, you know, patholo path pathological <laughs> maniac, you know. So I don't know. <laughs> Well, but, you know, again, this, this past year is, I mean, we're improvisers, right? So that's yeah. what we all kind of had to do. Well, it's, we do it. Well, You're making it happen, right? You know, it's good. We're still doing it. You know, we're, we're finding ways. Here we are. We're online. We're whatever we're doing. Zooming and Skyping and, you know, and yeah, and phones. Oh, my. Yeah, I would rather not have to have my improv chops tested out that way, but here we are. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. You can't you can't go back and fix stuff on a on an instant video. <laughs> no doubt. All right, so then your your personal career as you left Turtle Island and went off to do the the solo artist thing, uh, maybe talk some more about that and what sort of what sort of bridges did you feel like you still had to cross at that point? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it was just kind of getting my name out there and that that was kind of hard for me at first because uh i'm just you know i felt like i've always felt like an ensemble player you know uh i came up when i was playing in high school orchestra i was the last chair second violin uh which was great for me because i learned a lot about part you know playing accompaniment parts you know uh, stuff that and that stood me in good stead for you know david's band because you know, I wasn't the sol I wasn't the main soloist. David and Tony were the main. You know, I had to make up. You know, good backup parts. To try to, and that that just you know it such an important thing. But um, so I'm all I'm grateful for that. And in the string quartet, also you know you just you're not soloing all the time. You got to figure out ways to accompany people, and that's why the chopping thing was so great. Um, 
because that really just opened up a whole world of things that I could, you know, I never wanted to stop playing. I just right. didn't want to be in front all the time, you know. So that was cool. So that was kind of a, it was a mental leap, you know, to go from, you know, uh, Daryl Anger, the guy in some group, you know, some really cool group, to, you know, oh, Daryl Anger leading his own ensemble. So of course, I had a bridge, because Mike, Marshall, and I were still playing all over the place as a duet, and that was great, because, you know, Mike, you know, one of the great virtuosos of all time on strings. And, um, you know, I was, and if it's only two people, you know, you have to do everything. You know, you're playing bass. Right. Yeah. So that was cool, because I already had the accompaniment skills. And that got me, you know, soloing more. You know, it was just either him soloing or me soloing. So that was great. Now we got Mike Marshall and Daryl Anger, Gator's Dream. This is from the Montreal Jazz Festival in 1983.
Just starting to really, you know, go to fiddle camps and teach. I'd meet all these young fiddle players, um, and hanging out with other styles, you know, like uh, the Celtic people, Alistair Fraser's camp, and uh, you know the jazz stuff, and meeting Christian House. Incredible experience. That guy is such a genius. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 and. Uh, Oh, just, you know, it just goes on and on. But, um, you know, Baru Smolsky, for instance, you know, the, the all-time, you know, he, the guy that he just completely, he's probably, um, you know, probably the most influential fiddle player in the world in the last 10 years. You know, got all these people playing all-time music, you know. He's sort of like reinvented all-time. He's like the Benny Thomason of Appalachian fiddle. You know, he reinvented the whole style. So that's been great. And, um, but what, yeah, what happened really, I, I went to all these fiddle camps, taught, and then I made a record called Diary of a Fiddler with all these, you know, duets with all these people using all my, you know, accompaniment skills, mostly just, um, you know, accompanying these great fiddle players, Natalie McMaster, Stuart Duncan, and, and Martin Hayes, uh, Alistair Fraser, of course, uh, Vassar's in there, um. Yeah, it's just a long list of of people, and that was great because it was me and everybody good, you know. <laughs> and that that affected a lot of people. A lot of people really liked that record because it was just fiddling, you know. That's that was my thing. You you gotta like fiddle <laughs> fiddles to to like this record. Yeah, but that that worked out great, and um, you know I had a couple of the youngsters at that point. Casey Dreesen and Hanukkah Castle were were pretty young and I, I got them. The last cut was me and, and those two uh, mm. just grooving like crazy and Casey was chopping like a maniac by then and, and so we just traded back and forth. Annika was just, you know, just ripping, you know, Celtic maniacal stuff over the top. So that was fun. And this is exactly that tune he was just talking about. Celtic groove with Annika Castle and Casey Dreesen. 
And then uh, Brittany Haas came along. Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce actually uh, got got me with Brittany. He said, well, I've just run out of stuff to teach this girl. She's only 14, but she knows everything I know. Can you take over? <laughs> wow. Yeah, and of course, Brittany has a sister, Natalie. Yeah, they're fantastic. And, oh, they're unbelievable. You know, Brittany's, well, Brittany's really, you know, I mean, my... My personal favorite fiddle player, you know, she's just so fierce, you know, she's like the fiercest fiddle player in all the land. And of course she's got that great group now, Hocktail. And, uh, you know, I've just seen, and then going to Berkeley, it's like fiddle camp every day all year, you know. So people just moving in, you know, just, wow, so many great players. Um, I can't even barely, you know, stand it you know it's uh, it was such a great experience and now of course i'm kind of retired from berkeley and i'm uh kind of figuring out what to do next but um i've lived in california moved back to the mountains in california for a couple of years and now i'm ready for the final <laughs> chapter i'm moving to nashville man i'm i'm I, i'm caving i'm just going to nashville <laughs> So we'll we'll see how that works out. I'm, it'll be fun. I I get I'm just gonna be the gray eminence, and I'm gonna hang around and say, "Yeah, kids, sounds great, really good. <laughs> keep keep doing it." <laughs> That's the thing we find that you know all the stuff that took us twenty or thirty years to learn the hard way. Yeah. You know, if a kid will listen, you can teach them that in a couple years. Yeah. And then take that and run with it, buddy. Yeah, and they are, man. It's just so amazing, you know. It's just a beautiful thing, and I get, you know, I guess the point is, if they're not surpassing you, then you haven't done your job right, right? Right. Yeah. So that's that's great, you know. I'm just so into it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not really keeping up with the electric stuff so much. You know, people are doing it. Um, I know Joe Denison is completely committed to that stuff, and he's great. Such an imaginative fella um, yeah an incredible writer singer yeah. player entertainer all that yeah fantastic so yeah you know with Brittany and Rashad Eggleston I had that Republic of Strings band and that was mm -hmm. really cool you know the whole idea that uh, okay you know there's a imaginary country of string players whose borders run through and beyond all other imaginary borders you know? so that that was a great thing and good conceit and we yeah we did a lot with that group too and I, um Brittany went off to Princeton and I, I had a series of you know I had Gabe Witcher in that band for a while and Sarah Watkins and uh, oh man yeah Jeremy Kittle played with that band for a while and Tristan Claridge and Tashina Claridge well at different times and so that was an amazing thing and then watching Brittany and Rashad uh get into Crooked Still and then Tristan taking Rashad's place in that band and watching that band blow up with with Aoife, of course, Aoife O'Donovan. That was a total thrill. This year's From the Republic of Strings. This is the Duck River Medley.
So you got a five-string glasser in your hand right there. Um, if, if, if you just and you said that you just recently have been sort of messing with five strings. Now I know in in all your bands before you were playing four-string and then also octave violin too, right? The octave violin was a big thing, and just like Jean-Luc, you know, who has famously said, you know, well, I like that octave violin, but once I got the five-string, I didn't really need the octave anymore. And uh, it's kind of been the same with me. I, I pull that thing out on occasion. Uh, mostly to bug the cello player, you know, because, man, when you plug the octave in, you have to plug it in, but when you yeah. plug that thing in, it's like, it's so direct, it's just like, man, you can like just blow down walls and stuff, it's very amazing. That thing's a wonderful instrument, but, um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't even play a four-string at this point, and the only reason I play a four-string is to teach people so they don't get confused about what string I'm on, mm. but I love the five-string, I've got, now I've got like a few couple you know <laughs> i've got an amazing uh, you know i also have an aes you know gary bartig gary and, gary and karen bartig uh the aes instruments with they're really acoustic instruments they got uh, gary makes his own pickup and it's got a little jack on the side and those things they sound great acoustically and electrically you, know, you just don't try to get on stage you know like on you know 150 decibels stage uh it's not going to work but if you want something that sounds acoustic and you're, you know, it's like maybe a, an acoustic-y band on an outdoor festival, that's kind of the way to go, I think, you know, those AES mm. instruments. I mean, I, you know, there's so many out there, but those are the ones I like, you know. Um, this one, of course, is just so easy. Um, you know, really, you know, my next underwater gig, I'm totally bringing this thing. You know? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I just love the necks on those. The necks just feel so good on them. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's like sort of a what is it? It's like it's kind of a velvet finish on the neck. Yeah, it's it's almost got that sort of almost that matte finish or yeah. whatever. But no matter they feel how good, much just the shape, shape of that neck is is fantastic. Beautiful shape. And no matter how much your hands sweat, that neck's still gonna feel dry. Very yep. cool. Yeah. So that's. that's and you think about what those things are priced at, and you know the the perfection pegs on them. I, yeah. It's. I mean, it's oh, one of my favorite instruments. No kidding, man. I, the, these, yeah, the perfection pegs, the geared pegs, man, I don't even know why you would ever use regular pegs. I've got all, I've had every one of my instruments fitted up with the geared pegs. It's yeah, me too. I mean, can we just have like 18th century technology? You know, can we not, can we get out of 14th century technology, please? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool, you know? Um. Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah, so I love that. And of course, you know, I, I'm a total tuning maniac, so I got them here, I got them here. Yeah. You know, I put them in the middle of the strings if I could, you know. <laughs> well, I do have them. It's my, called my left hand. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one I struggle with the most. The oh, pegs and the fine tuners, I know yeah, how to work those. If that left hand could, if I could get that. Tuner. <laughs> <laughs> right, good. That's funny. So what uh, what sonic spaces have you got uh, that you want to explore from here on? What what kind of 
experimentation are you thinking about doing? Well, you know, I'm excited about, uh, you know, just multi-tracking some things. Um, just getting, you know, getting getting a studio that uh, I can just sit in and just kind of make up stuff and mixing the acoustic sounds and the electric sounds. I think it's really going to be a cool thing. I just want some stuff, you know, that's kind of unrecognizable as a as a violin. Um, I've always been kind of into imitating other instruments anyway, and I think that there's a lot of juice there for. Um, I'm also interested. Yeah, I might get. You know, Tracy has that really nice six string of his that has the frets on the bottom three strings. Yep. And that's a lovely idea. I might have to try to get somebody to do that for me. I think Nashville is probably the place. You know, they they have all those kind of guys. That, that's, that's the place <laughs> to be. Figure out how to do crazy stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not pushing very hard these days. Um, I'm just gonna let. Uh, I'm gonna let the youngsters, you know, suggest ideas. You know, uh, I might do some producing and and just uh, contribute where I can and uh, just mess around with uh, all this stuff. You know, uh, you mentioned the six strings, of course. Uh, I know that Eric Aceto is actually, you know, uh, well, of course the I, I guess the um, Mark Woods stuff. Um, you know the Vipers. They've been. They're up to eight, right? I mean, they're they're doing like uh, seven. I think is the yeah. most he makes. Oh, good. <laughs> John Jordan makes an eight. In fact, he's even made a nine. Incredible. Yeah, I would think. You know, going into infrasound there. Um, yeah. I, maybe it's got high strings too. You can play. It's it. got one. He's got. It's got a high A because you can't go to a B. It'll just break. So the the high A on the on the piccolo violin is is a a fourth up. Very cool. I feel like E's are screechy enough already, right? I, you know, it's like, you, why, you need anything? I mean, it's just like, ah, come on, you know, especially for electric. Do we really music. need to go any higher than that? If yeah. you're in a, like, you know, 200 decibels, this is going to, that's going to hurt somebody. You're going to get sued, man. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I, I love the, you know, all these different things going on. Of course, the, the looper stuff is fantastic. Um, I, you know, I haven't really done enough of that and I really, you know, with all the textures I can get out of the thing, it seems like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> it's just that I, I love playing with other people and I think, you know, me too. That's, that's the reason I've never gotten into loopers cause I've always been in a band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can get along with people then you know, Hey, we'd be in the band. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's I should, why I should look into a looper. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can have, you know, you don't have to have as many, you know, having an argument with yourself, you know, you can take your time and you don't have to like, That's right. you don't have to come to blows or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to Nashville and being being out there and just uh, seeing who's there and what's going on and just, uh, you know, just exploring all the different colors and numbers and all that stuff. You know? Yeah, so much talent in Nashville. Yeah. Yes. Tracy's there, and Kyle Pudence is there, and Ross Holmes is there, and Cassandra Sotos is there, and just all these amazing players. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to connecting with Ross a little bit, because that guy, you know, beautiful cat, and just, uh, yeah. yeah, just the list goes on, you know? Uh, wow. Um, just, well, it's been a pleasure, man. Uh, yeah, likewise. You. It's really fun. Uh, 
I, I hope we get to do this again. And, and once I'm closer, you know, I can come out and visit you guys. See. Man, just, yeah, we've got a guest room here at the house too. And um, just anytime come over and you can come over to the shop and play as many instruments as you want. <laughs> That's so kind of you. Well, that that would be great. Yeah, I can try one of those uh, eight strings or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Like, where am I now? Uh, sorry, I couldn't resist. Thank you for listening to another episode of Rockstar Violinist. I can't believe it took us 60 episodes to get to Daryl Anger. But, uh, you know, better late than never or something. And OMG, wait till you hear who we have next month. I'll give you one little hint. Barnyard animals were involved. That's all you get. Okay. So enjoy some more Mike Marshall and Daryl Anger with Piacenza. We dedicated to the town where we, the first town that we played in, actually, it's called Piacenza, which means peace and niceness and just pleasant. I thought it meant pleasantness. you will have the greatest pasta you ever ate. Well, that totally was what it wound up meaning for us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. There's pasta Those and Italians. there's pasta for it. Pretty great. So it's up in the north. It's uh, in Tuscany. So this is a tribute to the food. Thank you.